Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is a great joy to once again um, be found in the house of the Lord. I'd like to take this time to thank the elders of this local church for the opportunity to stand before you for this privilege to open God's word together on this camp. As you are aware, we'll be going through the book of Haggai, and the theme of our sermon series is Arise and Build. And for the next four sermons, beginning this morning, I'll be taking us through uh, the four commands that are found in this particular book, beginning with the first one which is, consider your ways. Then next, after this, we will go on to look at the next one. Find, find, we find in chapter number 2, uh, which is a command, be courageous and work. Then tomorrow we will take to uh, the last part of chapter 2, where God brings forth the third and the fourth command, which is, consecrate your works. And the last one, the chosen one, arise and work. As you're about to receive those booklets, and I know that some of you are taking notes, I would love to ask these questions as the way of introduction. I know that... Um, most of the Sundays, especially the evening services that have been privileged to come to Antioch Bible Church, you have been going through the catechism. The first question in the catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? Let's do revision. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The next question goes like this. How can we or do we glorify God? Spurgeon's, Spurgeon's children's catechism he answers that question by saying this. We do glorify God by obeying Him and keeping His commands. The book of Haggai captures that very well as God comes to His people and He commands them and in commanding them, the essence, the goal, the chief end, we find it, chapter 1, in verse number 8. Go to the hills, bring wood, build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified in it. That is what we see in this book. That is the desire of the Lord God Almighty. But as a way of introduction, I would love to submit to you, beloved, that we are living in times and in days as God would desire this, 
He desired this because his house was laying in ruins. You and I, in God's providence, he would have us to be here this morning, that we would pause from the hustle and the bustle of life, and we will come here this morning and this weekend. The world around us, too, lies in ruins. We have professed this morning and we have said that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But I beg to tell you that the world around us holds to another creed. It is a creed by the secular humanist that goes like this, that the chief end of man is to enjoy self. According to R.C. Sproul, he will say this, that secular humanism will declare and profess and practice that all things are created for man, and they are to man, and they are for man's glory. Man is the center, not God. God actually does not exist. Humanists believe that mankind is the highest entity. Man is the measure of all things. And when it comes to the goals of man, uh, since then, this physical life is all there is. Man's goal is to get as much happiness and gain as many things as he can before time runs out. And that is the creed of the day. All things for man. All things to man's glory. And as a word of introduction, beloved, I want you to know that these are the ruins we are surrounded with. In our conviction that God did indeed create us for more than chasing worldly dreams. Nevertheless, we know this, that millions of people waste their lives in pursuit of the vain trappings of this world. Because they never discover the simple, obvious, glorious, biblical reality that God's steadfast love is better than life. And this teaching of secular humanism has crept in into the church in a subtle way. We also have bought into it. Our lives and our goals are actually propelled by this philosophy. And it is with this in mind, I want you to know, beloved, in the Lord, that such a notion and such a worldview, if you are there, you are never gripped by the truth that to live is Christ and to die is gain. The awesome biblical promise that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters covers the ocean and the sea as found in Habakkuk 2.14. We never come to understand that. To understand all the fact that we are but pilgrims. To understand the truth that we are but strangers. To understand the fact and the truth that we are aliens. Christian, to understand your role and your duty, that you are but an ambassador working for a far from home. Our citizenship is in heaven, isn't it? 
but to be honest we may put the pause button for the next while we become so attached to this world that we we live for a wrong kind of kingdom we we forget our true home There is no urge, no desire within us that we are even homesick. The yearning and the longing of John in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, Come, Lord Jesus, come, Maranatha. It's none of our confession. It's none of our cries. And listen to a man who captures this so well. Randy Akon, he would say this. In his book, Heaven, he says this. When we forget eternity, we tend to lose sight of what's important. When you lose sight of what is truly important, you live for what is temporally. And your heart seeks for satisfaction where it cannot be found. Ekon goes on to say, you look for satisfaction where it cannot be found, and this looking for, that, for satisfaction where it cannot be found leaves you spiritually empty and potentially hopeless. For David Tripp calls it, eternity amnesia. Living as an eternity amnesiac just doesn't work, he says. It leaves you either hoping that now will be the paradise it will never be, or hopeless that what is broken will never be fixed. And it is with this, beloved, that I want you to, to see that the book of Haggai captures that so well. That as the Lord then comes to his people, at this point in time, he's coming to men and women he has redeemed. They are men and women who have forgotten the important things. And knowing that we are men who are prone to wonder, or we feel it. Men who are prone to leave the God we love. Shall we come before our Father and ask Him to speak to us this morning? Let's pray. Our glorious Redeemer, our precious Savior. We thank you for your word. I'm reminded of the words of the hymn writer, the Puritan of old. Oh, great God of the highest heaven. Occupy our lowly hearts. On them all, reign supreme. Conquer this morning every rebel power. 
It is our cry this morning that the vice of sin that remains, the vice of sin that remains and resists your holy will, God conquered. We are but men who can admit this morning that we have found ourselves here this morning not on the merits of our own. We were all blinded by sin. We have no ears in and of ourselves, no ears to hear your voice. So we do ask of you, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would open our ears to hear your voice. You would open our eyes to see the beauty of the glories to come. The beauties of your glorious Son, Jesus Christ. For we acknowledge this morning that you alone are worthy to be praised with our every thought and our every deed. So we do ask of you that you would speak to us. I pray for my, for my own heart, Lord. I ask that you would give me ability. You give me clarity. Even as we come to your word, you will, oh God Almighty, encourage those who are downtrodden. You will, oh, in, in a special way, you will raise your army. You will empower us indeed. You will make us fit for this cause before us. We will not cower, but help us to go out courageous. That we will not go back fearful, but rather men who are full of faith. For faith comes by hearing, hearing your word. May we then receive your word, not as a word from man, but as it is. Like the, like the Thessalonians, the word of God, which is able to make us wise for salvation. It is for the glory of Christ we ask. That for the days coming and for the moments we will spend in your word, Holy Spirit, you would guide us into all truth. This for the glory of Christ, for the goodness and the gladness of the heart of his bride, the church. We pray all this and may God's people say Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles, the book of Haggai, chapter 1. And we will read together this morning, verse 1, all the way to verse Verse 15. May I ask you to stand on your feet in honor for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. To Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. 
You have sown much, but harvested little. You, you eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but you are not warm. And he who earns wages does so to put into a bag with holes. That says a lot of horse. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills. Bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much. And behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew. And the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land. And the hills and on the grain. The new wine, the oil and on what the ground brings forth. On man and beasts. And on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shatia, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. And the words of Haggai, the prophet, as, he, as, as the Lord, their God, had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the heart, the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shadiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. And they came, they worked on the house of the Lord there. God. On the 24th day, of the month in the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. You may have your seats. So the book of Haggai, as you have received the handouts, I will take you through this book. The first thing that we see in this particular book, Haggai the prophet, it comes to a people of Judah. When they were extremely vulnerable. They had been humbled by their exile to Babylon. And hopefully in their return, they find themselves in this promised land. And we know this from the book of Ezra. That as the people returned, when the first group had returned... They started to rebuild the temple. Yet as the project continued, the people stopped. Now 16 years later, with Haggai blaming their lack of food, clothing and shelter on their failure to rebuild the temple, the Jews are 
the, recept, the, the receivers. They are the ones whom God is sending this message. In the booklet that you have received, the first point there in sermon number one. So the recipients of this prophecy, it's the leaders of Judah and their people. Those are the recipients. We see that in verse number one. Let's go together in that particular verse, in that order. Verse one, we told that it's in the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day of the month. That's the time, the date on which this prophecy comes. And the prophecy of Haggai actually has several specific chronological markings. Here we learn that the prophecy began in what would be 520 BC, in the month of September. And God is specific in sending forth His word. And I'll, I'll come to that. But I want you to see here, there is an intentionality in which that the Bible records this. Maybe unlike many other prophets who do not record their timing, Haggai does that. Now, if you're curious like I was, you'd ask the question, why? Why is it so specific? Why bog down with the debts? There's something indicated there that, that, that there is a pagan king pointed out in verse number one. Darius. Because at this particular time, there was no king in Israel. Yet the debt was still important. Why was it important? I'm glad you asked. So let's bring in Spurgeon. What does he say? Spurgeon says this. Listen to this. He says, there is a set time for each of Haggai's messages to come to men. And there is a set time for each messages that comes from God to men. And God would have them give heed to every message in this particular context as soon as it is delivered to them. If they do not, listen to this, He, speaking of God, He keeps count of the days of their delay. So it is in the second month, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, Next thing, what do we see? The word of the Lord comes. That's the second line there in verse number one. The word of the Lord came. And this will be a repeated theme that we are going to see in this particular book of Haggai. The nation of Judah at this particular time lies in ruins. The people have returned and they found the place they used to worship and fellowship together. The place that would be a, a place where God would manifest His Shekinah glory. A place where they would have their sins atoned for. A sentimental place now lying in ruins. Now the question is this, beloved, I want you to think with me. If you, if you were the one to be the director or the manager of this particular project, what would you send or who would you send for such a task of rebuilding the temple? We would say, let's send engineers. 
and listen to QSS to examine the land and the place. They will get this sorted out. We would say, let's send the builders. That's the, the correct agent. The, the house lays in ruins. The correct agent we must send for these ruins to be fixed. Let's send the builders. After that, then we can see as to how the project will, will, will go. Like then, we can also turn as to how will the development be like. Then later on, we can then mobilize the people, maybe to do the painting and the finishing touches. No. That's not what God does. What does he do? He sends his word. Do you see that? Do you see that? A nation is laying in ruins and, 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 and we hear in, in verse number one. It's, it's not even in, in, the, in verse number two. It's not in verse number three. Right in the first verse, beloved, I want you to see here, God sends his word. The word of the Lord came. At a specific time, at a specific day, when the nation was lying in ruins. How significant is this? It is so significant if you would understand the nature of the word according to the Hebrews. Montgomery Boyce would tell us this. Among the ancient Hebrews, words were conceived as to have an objective existence. And to have a potency that was both inherent and irresistible. Such that you would see it all over from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22, the last verse. That the words in this book, or the words then, were regarded to be Potent, to have power to bless or to curse. You know of Isaac, when he discovered that his words of blessing had been pronounced over Jacob, he trembled. But once he evoked the blessing, he could not revoke the blessing. You remember that? You remember Balaam in the book of Numbers? That Balaam, he tried to curse the people of God and he could not because God could not allow him to do that. Aaron the priest, remember this is how we see, according to the potency of words from the lips of men, Aaron. What is God commanding Aaron to do as the people of God would come to this temple and they worship him? Chapter 6 of Numbers, verse 22-27. God commands Moses to tell Aaron to say, when they will come and they worship, this is what your sons are to say to these people. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace and these were mere men now if the words of men were invested were invested with such potency the word of the lord would be more powerful agent wherever it went forth such that as God sees this particular land and he sees the state of the nation he does not send builders 
He sends His Word. Because words expressed a man's will and thoughts, his motive and intentions in these ancient times. So the word of the Lord expresses his thoughts. The word of the Lord expresses his intentions. The word of the Lord expresses his promises, his threats and commands. And you will see it written all over this book. Beloved, as you hear the word of the Lord, it is synonymous to him. Isaiah 55 verses 11. God says it will not return to me void. Isaiah 40 verses 8. All men are like grass and their glories. is like the flowers of the fields. The grass withers and flowers fall. But my word lives on forever. From Genesis we see God by his word created the heavens and the earth. The psalmist would declare this truth in Psalm 33 verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in a storehouse. Let the earth then fear the Lord. So he sends his word. So it will accomplish his desired purposes. And as you come down to the biblical history, you come to the patriarchal period, you find in those early times too, the word both introduced and produced the events as God will bring them forth to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 15, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. In the Mosaic period, what do we see? The word of the Lord came in the form of the Torah. Towards the end of the Judges, what do we see? The word of the Lord had become rare in Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 3 tells us that. And it was from that decline, there was that downward spiral in the time of the judges. The word of the Lord was rare. And you can see as the, the, the predicament that God's people would find themselves in. And I want you to connect that. Because as the word of God was rare, and you find it in 1 Samuel, that when Samuel came in, in the book of Samuel, chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 3, when the Lord began to reveal himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord, then Israel knew that a prophet of God was in their midst and the word of Samuel became a force. It was the word of God that became a force in Israel. And here too, God is using the mechanism of his word. He will then do the same with his people to call forth his people back to himself. He will raise up prophets amongst them. For his word is mediated to Israel through Nathan. Through David, through Micah, through Elijah, through Elisha. And with the increasing frequency through the great prophets from the 8th century. The word of the Lord kept coming, but God's people kept obeying. And it was out of their disobedience that God then would take them from this promised land. And he would send them to Babylon for 70 good years. Now that they have come back. Now that he's about to rebuke them, the word of the Lord now comes. How does it come? Verse number one tells us, by the hand of Haggai the prophet. 
the implication of that statement, it implies then that this man is but a servant. He is a bearer of the word of the Lord. Beloved, I want you to see here that God, on this rebuilding mission, the agent that he's going to use is his word. Your life, your friends, your family, our society. Because as we look at this analogy and the metaphor of rebuilding, the metaphor of the temple, all sons of Adam, their bodies are regarded as the temple too. But from Genesis chapter 3, let me use that metaphor too, as the sin of Adam penetrates and invades every soul of the son of Adam. Every son of Adam is in ruins. The manner in which God is going to restore, to rebuild our society, it's not through our smartness. It's not through human wisdom. It's not through some theories invented by some scientists who were smoking too much oxygen somewhere. He will build his church, his people, by his word. And that's what he does. And his messengers are but agents. His messengers are but servants. They are but subordinates and such is this man Haggai here. You wonder why I'm laboring this point? You will see why. But I want you to see here that Haggai here, as the prophet of God, he is but a mouthpiece. He is a postmaster. He is but a messenger. Let's speak in modern terms. It is like this, beloved. You order an item on Amazon. And the male guy brings the message or whatever you ordered. You receive it with gladness and joy. But if that which he brings to your door is wrong, do you? Or if it is good, do you start praising him for delivering the parcel? Do you? Do you? No, you don't. Oh, let's go more modern. Speak about your WhatsApp message or Facebook messenger. If a friend of yours sends you a message, your mailbox, whether you're using Gmail or Yahoo, is but means and tool. You don't blame Google for the wrong message or the right message you have received. So the man who is delivering the message here is but a means. He is not the author of the message. God is the author of the message. So he will be among us the first post exilic 
minor prophets who comes into these people of the 12 minor prophets who spoke the word of the Lord. He is the right word that is used there. It's by the hand of Hagar. He's the right messenger. He comes and he brings this message and it has to be received. Because there's a specific people that God has in mind. There's a specific address that God has in mind. And who are the recipients? Look at verse number 2. It is to Zerubbabel, the leaders. Verse number 1. To Zerubbabel, to Shatel, to govern, the governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So these will be the men. Zerubbabel will be the governor of Judah at this particular time. His name simply means one who is born in Babylon or a seed of Babylon. An allusion to his birthplace because that's where he was born. He was a political governor at this particular time. He was an overseer of the Persian province of Judah. He had led the returnees back to this land. We are told in verse number 2 that he is the son of Shatiel. He will be the grandson of King Jehoiakim, one of the descendants of King David, according to First Chronicles chapter 3, verse 17 to verse 19, and Matthew chapter 1, verses number 12. So you have this guy who is in the political, political, political responsibility and is a political leader, if you want to call him. But next one, it's one who is in the temple. The church, if you want to, 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 to look at it in that way. The one who, who are in charge of spiritual affairs. The message is not excluding anyone. To Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The high priest of the restoration community and the descendant of Aaron. He was the son of Jehozadak who had gone into Babylon, Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. So the recipients are these leaders, both political and religious. And as God would desire to restore the nation, He desires to restore every aspect of this land so that this land would glorify Him. And all the people are included. But God's Word, this is my point, is the instrument. Through which then God will be shown in this particular context. He's going to act. Such that words and deeds you will see in this particular chapter. And as we, we are going to be studying through the book of Haggai. Words and deeds are identical with God. And it is the identity that, that makes the truth declared in the word might and power. And in both destructive and constructive sense. So he says. His word to these people. He commissions Haggai. And in his commissioning, let's look at point number two, the rebuke for procrastination. So God then confronts his people. So the word comes to these people and the word comes with a rebuke. Look with me, verse number 2 to verse number 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of the armies. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. 
So the introduction that Haggai does, and I want you to see here, you will see this term, this name of God used more often in the book of Haggai, the Lord of hosts. Simply means the God of the armies. That's what it means. Jehovah Saboas. So, so he's not coming here. God is not coming here as one who is coming to get suggestions and opinions from his people. And I'm calling this the rebuke because it is coming from this almighty God, Jehovah Shabbos, Yahweh of the armies, the God of battles. The idea implies absolute power and authority. Such that to these people who are hearing this particular message, as they hear this, that this is a word from the Lord of hosts, they have an idea as to what Haggai is talking about. To those who are chasing after worth, pomp, position. The Lord of hosts is coming with commands and rebukes. He is the one who is the originator and the source of all power. He is mighty and victorious in every battle. You cannot stand before him and claim that you win your battle. He comes and he speaks these words of rebuke. He comes and he says what? These people. By stating these words, what God is saying here, by referring to them as these people rather than my people, it means that what they are doing, actually they are demonstrating that they are no longer on God's side. Parents, you know this. If a child is doing something wrong, some parents have the tendency. If it's a husband, they say, look at your child, what she's, he's, he or she is doing. By implication? No, what that child is doing as of now, it does not look like what I do condemn, condone. You separate yourself from such and in the same way God separates himself from these people. He says these people, they say. He distances himself from them. At this point in time, as this rebuke is coming, at this point in time, beloved, God is against these people. He is no longer on their side. Because they are not on his side. Let's hear what they are saying. They are saying the time has not yet come. Procrastinating. Professing. So they wonder and they continue with their works. They wonder and continue with their actions. But in this particular context, and I want you to see here, it's not like these people are lazy. It also does not mean that these people, for some reason, are men and women without resources. These men and women have opted to intentionally divorce themselves from God, and they have opted intentionally to make sure that they offer lip service to God. They spoke as if they controlled time. 
not God. In other words, they were, they were, they were their own sovereigns. These beloved will be trendsetters in our modern day and age. Masters in statistics. We can liken them to weather masters, strategic planners. And they want to be in the boardroom with God and they are trying to give counsel to the Lord Almighty, the governor of the universe, the one who spun the stars in the sky. And they are saying to him, whether by their actions or by their lips, we are not told. But we see in this particular context that they are saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of God. In other words, they had the ability to discern any other trend not with regard to the work of God. And as we examine this, we are told that when these Jews considered resuming the construction, most of them said it was not yet the right time. Procrastination. It's not now. We will do it later. The harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. Pray that the Lord of Harvest will send forth more workers into the fields. Not now. Later. Sinners are separated from God. If they do not hear the word of God, the gospel preached to them, they will go to hell. What do we say? Not now. And resources are not an issue here. Look, verses number, verse, look with me, verse number six, going downwards. You've sown much, so they had actually crops that they would be able to plant. You clothe yourself. It's not like these are men and women who are naked. They clothe themselves. They eat. Look at verse number ten. The heavens above you have withheld the dew. And the earth has withheld its produce. I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the, on the grain and the new wine, the oil and what is on the ground. Man and beast and all your labors. They are hard-working men and women. But their hard work is in the wrong place. They lack the same sense of urgency and zeal that their forefather David had in 2 Samuel. If you read 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 2, David was burning with a passion, a passion to build God, a dwelling place. Not so with this generation. It's not like they were unable to build. They are actually building their own houses. Look at verse number 6 going downwards. God tells them, verse number 5, verse number 4 and 5. Is it time for yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? 
So you would agree with me, it's not a resources issue. It's no time issue. They have the resources. They have the time. But do these men and women, the time and the resources were placed on nothing else but self. Haven't we done that? Doesn't Maslow and his philosophies that are taught in our secondary schools, universities, and colleges, isn't he telling of the basic primary needs and you must chase them with all your heart until you self-actualize. So we will chase after the immediate needs like what the Bible is speaking of here. Food, shelter, clothes. We will chase after that at the expense of eternity. And at core, beloved, what I want you to see here, as you look at this particular section, what these people are doing, not only is God bringing this rebuke to them, but the third point and the fourth point, quickly, they are reaping poverty. Nothing that they are doing is succeeding. Why is the temple such a key factor in God's language here? Why is God telling these people to be vigilant, to be zealous, to build this particular temple? Why? Listen to Alec Motia. He says this. He says this. To refuse to build the temple, the house of the Lord, at best, was saying that it did not matter. Whether the Lord was present with them. And at worst, it was presuming on divine grace. That the Lord would live with his people even though they willfully refused to fulfill the condition of his dwelling that he had laid down. So two things there. They are saying God's house does not matter. We do not care whether God is with us or he is not. We don't care. We will live our lives independent of God. We are our own kings. So they continued to disobey. Oh, they were maybe we can we can think of, of this like we find in the book of Ezekiel chapter 40. They were maybe thinking and presuming that maybe for some reason, you know, they were super Calvinistic. God will somehow finish himself this work. Because he promised in Ezekiel 40 to 48 that the temple be rebuilt. 
because there is rebellion. God confronts their rebellion. God reveals that in their rebellion, they here have moved themselves away from him. So he calls them these people. And what you have here, they are now acting as men and women who are far away from God, who are doing everything for themselves. And maybe you may continue even to argue to say that maybe here priority is an issue. They are putting their work above God. They are putting their work above maybe their family. Not so, according to Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp says here that we have to admit that what we have here is a people that have an identity problem. Because they are trying to find their identity in the things that they own. They are trying to find their identity in their comforts. They are trying to find their identity in their possessions. They have no regard for God. They don't even care that God is there. And he, Paul Tribute warned us, we, 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 we have an identity problem because we forget who God is and who we are and that we have been given and all that we have been given by grace in Christ. And that is what we find here. We find a people who have an identity problem. As such, God afflicts them. He afflicts their labors. That's the reaping of poverty. Point number three. And the Lord explains explains the reason for poverty you can see in verse number five verse number six then you can see the reason for their poverty in verse number six it says there you've sown much you harvested little you eat but you never have your, your, your enough you drink but you never have your fill you clothe yourself but you are not warm and he who, warm, who, who earns wages does not put them into a bag it does put them into a bag of holes. So God, being sovereign, even allows that even in the moment when his people are disobedient, his word will still be fulfilled. Why am I saying that? Deuteronomy chapter 28. Listen to verse 38 to 40. This is what God had promised. He says this. It says, you shall carry much seed into the field. If you disobey me, you shall carry much seed into the field. You shall gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes. Why? For the worms shall eat them. In your disobedience, verse 41, God warns them, you shall, you shall, you shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. And this is where they are coming from. So even in their disobedience, God allows that his word will be accomplished. So they should put him first. But they put their prosperity first and not the house of God. And beloved, those who put their prosperity first and not the house of God, they are blind to God's chastising hands. And God comes to them, rebukes them, 
And lastly, what do we see? They then response. Look at verse number 12 to the end. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people. I love this. Look at these verbs. They obeyed the voice of the Lord. One, this is how they responded. It's obedience. Two, we are taught in verse number 12, the people feared the Lord. Because the one who is coming to them to speak to them is a God who is mighty in battle and he comes here not as one to submit under their orders or their wishes. He comes and he's telling them how wrong they are. He tells them, I am the one who blew away everything that you brought in. Such that, and beloved, as you look at these people, we can share in many ways as to their disobedience. As you come and you, you look at what they are saying, you would agree with me here that as they come and as they look at what they are doing here, they are men and women who have, yes, sidelined the Lord. They were men and women who had disobeyed His commands according to what He had said in Deuteronomy. There are men and women who are walking in this disobedience, utter disobedience. But as the word of God comes, surely, as Isaiah 55 verse 11 says, we see in this particular context, it is not returning to him void. It's accomplishing its desired purposes. It's demanding obedience and yes, obedience we see. The Lord of hosts, the God of the armies, on whom and through whom all the nations will one day stand. Jesus Christ, He is the Lord of hosts. Coming here in this particular context, beloved, tells them, commands them, verse number 8, Go up to the hills, bring the wood, build the house, that they may be, I may take place in this house and I may be glorified. And they obeyed it. They did not just pay lip service. No. Disobedience now is turned to obedience. So the remedy for their disobedience, actually as we see here, the remedy for their poverty, three times then, let's finish, God caused them to consider their ways. Three times. Verse number five, consider your ways. Verse number seven, consider your ways. Reflect upon your priorities. Readjust your lives and face my will. And if you don't listen, and if we don't listen, there will be dire consequences. God is leaving no stone unturned. Both the political leaders, religious leaders, all of them, no one is exempt. They all must submit to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. He is not obliged to speak once, let alone to speak twice. Can you see here? Consider your ways in verse number 5. Consider your ways in verse number 6. 
He called the people to reflect salary on what they were doing. He urged them to go to the mountains. Complete the temple. That I would be pleased and I'll be glorified in this place, he says. Beloved, let me finish. We'll continue the next time. I want you to know this. You and I, as we sit here, we either are buying into the secular humanistic agenda where we live our lives for self, for our self glory, for our self pleasure, for our self praise. But know this the time is short. The day of grace is slipping away. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The day of judgment is drawing near. The thread of life is winding up. A few more short years and every soul of us who have gone into his own place. We shall each of us stand before a holy God. And he calls us to consider our ways. He calls us to humbly come before him and stand in all of him. And he demands nothing but obedience. So that then our nation that rise in ruins, the lives of men that lies in ruins, the families and the homes that are lying in ruins, God is commanding you to go up there as his messenger. Speak forth. His word. In obedience, in humility, we stand in fear of Him. Like these men, we obey. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, none of us can stand before you. You know our priorities are twisted. You know our lives are in shambles. You know that we were ruined by sin. We walked in disobedience. In love, in grace, Lord, you came. Ruined your own son so that you may build us. You considered him sin that we may become your righteousness. We admit this morning, we do not seek your kingdom, we do not seek your righteousness. We do admit this morning we seek after the kingdoms of this world. Our prayer and our desire is that you help us by your spirit. Stir up our hearts, therefore, by your spirit that we may do your work for Jesus' sake and for the goodness of your church.